Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18? And we're going to read verses 33 through 38a. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. It is, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Good morning. morning. Happy uh, belated Thanksgiving, I guess. It's great to uh, celebrate Thanksgiving weekend with you. We're glad you're here today. Uh, Welcome if you're visiting from out of town or if you're visiting our church this morning. We're just, uh, it's great to be together to worship Jesus on this uh, holiday weekend. Uh, We are going to be in that text you just heard. And so if you didn't get a chance to turn to it, turn to it uh, now, if you would, please. And let's pray together and ask God's help with it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the times of, uh, of celebration. For some, it was uh, raucous. For others, it was perhaps quiet and sedate. Um, and uh, it was probably mixed with, uh, with good and, and maybe even some, some missing some people. I mean, all of that gets stirred into these holidays, but you are the one who, who stands in and over it all. And we just thank you for that. Thank you for bringing us here today. Uh, thank you for your word and how you speak to us through and from Scripture. And uh, we would just submit ourselves now to the teaching of your word, we pray, uh, that every single one of us, starting with me, Lord, and everyone who's in this room and is uh, catching this online, participating online, we pray that every one of us, that the words of of this guy's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. That's our prayer request this morning as we come to, to the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season. You hear those words a lot this time of year, especially in uh, Christian circles. We put them on banners and bumper stickers. Uh, a few years ago, our church even passed out buttons. I don't know if any, how many might remember this. It was a bunch of years ago now, but we had these buttons that said in bold letters, Jesus is the reason for the season. And I like that little saying. I know some would say it's overused, maybe even in danger of becoming a cliche, but Uh, But I still think it's helpful. I understand where those folks are coming from, but I think it's a helpful phrase because it's a good way for us to remind ourselves uh, what Christmas is about. Uh, I do know that it's Thanksgiving weekend, uh, but it is also the first Sunday of Advent, for those of us who keep track of that kind of thing. 
Uh, Advent is that season in the church calendar that runs from, basically covers the four Sundays uh, leading up to, or the four Sundays before Christmas. So just find Christmas on your calendar and count four Sundays back. That's Advent. And, and today is the first one. This is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. And for Advent this year, I don't always do a, we don't always do a, an Advent series here, but I, I like to. And, and for this year, for Advent, I'd like to dig a little deeper into that saying. That's, that's saying that Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, he is, but can we say more than that? Can we, can we be a little more specific when we say that Jesus is uh, the reason for, this, for the season? And to do that, I'd like to ask the New Testament a question. I have a question I want to pose to the New Testament, and the question is, why was Jesus born? Why was he born? What was, what was the purpose of his birth? What did God set out to accomplish when he sent his one and only son into the world? Well, as it turns out, there are actually a bunch of passages, several passages in the New Testament that come right out and tell us. They use this language of telling us why Jesus was born. They'll, they'll, they'll say, this is why he was born, or this is why he came, this is why he appeared. The, the phrasing's a little different from passage to passage, but they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the reasons, plural, the reasons for the birth of Jesus. And, and so that's what I'd like to focus on for these four Sundays of Advent. I think I actually have one planned for the Sunday after Christmas as well. Uh, and just to look at passages in the New Testament that help us understand better why Christ was born. Why, this is, why, why we spend a twelfth of the year celebrating it. Why is it so important? What was God doing? So this morning we're going to start with uh, John chapter 18. The text uh, was read for us before. And this is a good place to start because this is one of the ones where Jesus just tells us himself. They're not all like this. Some of them are in the epistles, you'll see. But, but this is one of the texts where Jesus just says, here's why I was born. And the reason in this passage that he says has to do with truth. Uh, Jesus was born to reveal the truth. That's what this first text is about. Jesus was born to show us reality. That's how I want us to think about this today. He came to show us how things really are. He came to reveal the truth. Now, one of the first things we notice about the text I chose is that this is not a traditional Christmas passage, right? If you were expecting traditional Christmas passages this season, you're not going to get very many of them. Uh, there's no shepherds in this text. There's no angels. Uh, I suppose you could argue there are hints of the Magi, but not really. They're not here. Uh, Mary and Joseph aren't here. Uh, instead, the main character is Pontius Pilate. Right? One of your Easter guys, right? It's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who sentences Jesus to die. Which means as we start this little series on why Jesus was born, we're actually starting at the end of his life. This isn't the first few hours. This is the last few hours of his life on earth. And, and that's why it's especially striking that Jesus brings up his birth. I'm not imposing this on this text. He's the one who brings it up. You see it in verse 37. He says to Pontius Pilate, For this reason I was born. Now, most people aren't thinking about why they were born when they're very close to death, right? That's not how most of us are wired, but Jesus was thinking that way. Just hours before he goes to the cross, he's thinking about the purpose of his birth. And so this is uh, an unexpected, but a very helpful, I think, Christmas conversation between these two men. So I'd like to use some of the time just to situate it, situate it in the text. This is our text this morning, so let's understand it, even though it's not a, a traditional Christmas kind of passage. Uh, Matthew, uh, uh, John 18, 
Uh, Jesus has just been tried by the Sanhedrin, right? So he's appeared before the, the Jewish council. That's what the Sanhedrin is. And they have already passed their verdict, right? So they have decided, the, the religious and political leaders of the Jewish people have decided that Jesus should be executed. He deserves to die because of blasphemy. This is their finding against him. Uh, he appears before the high priest, and he, he claims to be God. He, he claims to be God, and, and no one can claim to be God except God, and they don't believe Jesus is God, and so they draw from, if you get inside their heads, you can see why they would conclude this, uh, they conclude Jesus is a blasphemer. And so Old Testament law says a blasphemer should be executed. And, and they got some other things going on, too. We know there's lots of jealousy and hatred and resentment and politics going on, some ugly politics, but... But the formal charge from the Jewish side of things against Jesus is blasphemy. However, uh, they don't have the authority to make this happen. They do not have the authority to carry out an execution. Uh, the Sanhedrin is um, subservient to the Roman authorities. Rome is, uh, Judea is a vassal state uh, of, of the Romans, at this point the Roman Empire. And the Romans didn't share execution privileges with other peoples. They kept that for themselves. It was one of the ways they kept power over people. And so this is why, you know, this is why the Jews who want to kill Jesus have to bring Jesus to the Roman governor. They bring him to, to Pilate because Pilate is the one who actually needs to make this happen. He's the only one who actually has the authority to sign off on it. <clears throat> and so they bring Jesus to Pilate. But here's the problem. They got a problem here. The problem is Pilate does not care about blasphemy. He really doesn't care if Jesus thinks he's God or the Son of God. Jesus could think he's a potted plant for all, all Pilate cares. He really could. Uh, the Romans, they tended to stay out of these kind of intramural debates, if you will. Uh, as long as people paid their taxes and didn't revolt against the emperor, they could do their thing. That's how they often approached it. And so the Sanhedrin can't come to Pilate and say, kill him for blasphemy because he won't care. He'll shrug and say, get away from me. I got better things to do. And so they come with this other charge. They come with another approach. They say he claims to be the king of the Jews. So this is the charge they bring to Pilate. Jesus is claiming to be, and his followers are claiming that he is the king of the Jews. And, and the logic runs like this. Uh, Jesus has made messianic claims. Even more so, his followers have, have made messianic claims. He's the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be the king of the Jews. He's supposed to be a descendant of King David. He's supposed to sit on David's throne. The scriptures say so. And so for Jesus to claim to be the Messiah, Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And that one is a problem. This is a problem for Pilate because king of the Jews is a political title. It's a political title as far as the Romans are concerned. Uh, actually, Herod the Great, there you go, here's a our, here's our Christmas guy, uh, not one of the good ones, but uh, Herod the Great, is, uh, he was known as the king of the Jews. That was one of his titles. Uh, he, the Romans uh, looked, that was one of the titles the Romans gave him, and he was there to kind of keep Judea and Israel under, under his thumb for their sake. When, and that's when Jesus is born. Herod the Great was the king of the Jews, and he'd long since died by now, but if, if this is the claim that this Jesus of Nazareth is making, well, that is a potential problem. He may be trying to lead some kind of revolt, which is why Pilate, who would dismiss the blasphemy charge as nonsense, 
will consider this charge that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so you need all that to understand this exchange, right? We sang about you know, a couple of songs with, with the theme of kingship in them, very rightly so, because that's really the heart of this passage. So, so Pilate goes into, inside, so he's heard the complaints from the Jews. He goes inside of his palace, and Jesus is brought to him. And this is significant because it means it's a private interview. The Jews aren't there. They don't want to go inside the Gentile palace. If they do, they'll become ritually unclean, and then they can't participate in the Passover, which just started. And so they are all outside. And so this passage we heard a few minutes ago, this is a private interview between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And Pilate starts out with a question. He starts the grilling. Uh, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Are you? That, and that's what they've been saying, right? That's, and this is the... We're actually never told a verse where they charge him with this. We know that's the charge because it's what Pilate brings up. And so he, he surfaces the charge. Uh, they've leveled this against you. How do you, uh, how do you plead? And, and it's important to see here that there is a, a trial going on here. Uh, Roman law held that an accused person had to be given three chances to answer the charge. This was kind of Roman jurisprudence. And Pilate's actually going to follow that. He's going to give Jesus three chances to um, answer the charge that he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. The first one is there in verse 33. So how do you answer? Are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Jesus, wonderful Jesus, uh, turns the tables. You know, he does this a lot. You see him uh, exercising his authority even when it looks like he doesn't have any. Uh, he, the questioned becomes the questioner. Verse 34, uh, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? If I may paraphrase, Jesus says, why do you want to know? <laughs> why do you want to know? Uh, and, and what he's asking with those two questions is, are you asking sincerely? Are you prepared to entertain the possibility that I am? Or are you just reciting, regurgitating what my enemies have said about me? And I might be reading a little bit into this, but I don't think so. I think Jesus is, is, asks that question because the way he will engage Pilate is going to depend on Pilate's answer. Right? Jesus is, going to, is using a question to, to and, and of course he knows the man's heart, but he does this a lot, where he's testing Pilate's faith to see where he is. And you actually see Jesus do this in the Gospels a number of times. I think of the, the time when um, Jesus was passing through Jericho and a blind man from the side of the road calls out to him. Remember that, remember that one? You know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus goes over to the man, or the man is brought to him, and uh, Jesus asks him a question. Right? What do you want me to do for you, he says. It's obvious, isn't it, Jesus? I mean, he's blind. I mean, it's obvious what he wants you to do for him, but Jesus still asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? He does it again with, uh, or earlier, it was earlier, but he, he did it with a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Uh, the man is obviously paralyzed. He needs help, but Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And he uses these questions. You see him do it a number of times where he uses a question to engage a person about faith before he then takes that next step of helping that person. And I think that's what's going on here with Pilate. And so Pilate sometimes is just this stock figure, but Jesus is treating him like a human being. Jesus is engaging him personally. And so if Pilate says, I do want to know. I've heard some stories about you. It's kind of these rumors. What's going on here? Are you? Who are you? If, if Pilate answers that way, well, then the, there's one conversation that might happen. But if, if Pilate says, you know, kind of shut up or I don't care or something like that, 
then that's a different kind of conversation that's going to happen. And we get his answer in verse 35. How's he going to answer? Uh, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. Uh, when he says that, he's pushing this whole thing away from himself. He's keeping this whole thing at arm's length. I don't care if you're the king of the Jews or if you think you're the king of the Jews. That means nothing to me. This is a debate between you and your own people. Your people are the ones who brought you here to me. That's an in-house Jewish debate. I'm not a Jew. I could care less whether you're the king of the Jews or anybody else. And that's his answer. That's Christ's answer to, to the question. Uh, Pilate's not asking from faith. He's not asking sincerely. He's just reciting what he's been told. Right? Option B. He's just reciting what he's heard. And so he's, just, he's doing his job, but that's all he's doing. He's just dealing with these charges against Jesus. And so we get the second question, the second questioning at the end of verse 35. Uh, Pilate comes at it from a different angle. He says, what have you done? Right, so there's opportunity number two to answer the charges. What have you done? Now, Jesus is going to answer him. And I would, I would think there are all kinds of ways he could have answered. Right? There are several different ways Jesus could have answered. And, and you can imagine Pilate expecting one of these other ways. So you could imagine, so Pilate says, what have you done? And he, he may well have expected Jesus to defend himself. I'm sure there have been lots of times when people have appeared before Pilate and they've, they've defended themselves. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. That's Sanhedrin. You know what they're like, Pilate. They're a bunch of jealous old men. They just, they hate me because I, people like me more than them. And so they're just jealous. I didn't do anything. I'm sure that would have been, you know, if Jesus had said that, Pilate would have said, yeah, I know what you mean. I hate those guys. Because they did. The Sanhedrin and Pilate, they were like, they did not get along at all. There's a lot of tension there. And so if Jesus had tried an answer like that, he maybe could have, he might have gotten released that that morning, right? Uh, or maybe Pilate was expecting kind of almost the opposite. Maybe he was expecting defiance. I'm sure he had seen lots of that when different revolutionary types had been brought before him. You bet I'm the king of the Jews. <laughs> and we're going to get you Romans one of these days. If not me, the next guy. We're going to throw you rotten Romans out of here one of these days. Uh, that would have been familiar territory. I think Pilate would have known exactly how to handle somebody like that. He knows just what to do with that kind of person. However, he doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He is baffled. You see it in this text and, and in the ones that follow. We won't look at all of them. But uh, he is baffled. By, by Jesus. And, and you see his answer in verse 36. So here's, here's Jesus uh, engaging with the second questioning. So verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate wants to talk about the charge. Let's talk about the charge. Jesus addresses it. Uh, but instead of answering directly whether he's a king. Instead, he talks about his kingdom. Right? So he starts talking about his kingdom. He says, I do have a kingdom, uh, but it's not here. My kingdom is not of this world. And then you could probably read this a couple of different ways, but that next line, I think what he's doing is he's giving evidence that his kingdom is not of this world. Right? My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, and the, the, fa the way you know my kingdom is not of this world is the fact that I'm standing in front of you right now, Pilate. If, if, if my kingdom were of this world, I have an army. And that army would have risen up and they would have busted me out of here by now. I wouldn't even be standing in front of you. And, and when he says that, when he, when, he, when he says my servants would be fighting to keep this from happening, uh, some think he means the disciples, but I actually think he means the angels. I think he's talking about his angel army. That's his, uh, his servants. 
uh, because he actually just talked about them a few hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember when Jesus is arrested, um, the, the disciples actually do try to defend him. Remember, Peter pulls out the sword, hacks off a guy's ear, Jesus heals the man. Um, the disciples did actually try to keep, you know, so his earthly servants did try to save him and they weren't so good at it. And Jesus makes Peter stop. And what does he remind Peter? I didn't write down the number, but it's there in that chapter. Uh, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels to defend me? Don't you think if, 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 uh, if I needed an army, I'd have an army like that? Don't you think? And I think that's, that's what he's referring to in verse 36. If, if this were my kingdom, my angel army would be here and uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But then he repeats it, but my kingdom isn't from here. My kingdom's not from this world, and so here I am. I'm, I'm no threat to you, Pilate, as far as that goes. I'm, my kingdom is not from this world. Uh, Pilate, he's a wily one, uh, he picks up on one detail from that statement. He says, aha, so you are a king, right? You're, I mean, if you have a kingdom, you must be a king. That, that's kind of the beginning there of verse 37. And that's his third question. I, I told you he's at least trying to follow Roman jurisprudence here. And so uh, he says, so you are a king. And now Jesus answers him directly, verse 37, you say that I'm a king. And I know in English that sounds a little ambiguous, but in Greek the phrase means, yes, I'm a king. And and so it's just, it's one of those idioms. And so, which is why I think the NIV, if you have an NIV, that translation is probably the most helpful here because NIV says you are right in saying that I'm a king. I mean, Jesus says, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I am a king. And, and the, the thing is, is, is he cannot say otherwise. Because he is. He is uh, the king of the Jews. He is the rightful heir of David's throne. And, and so Jesus says, yes, I am a king. Uh, but then, then, he's, it's, he doesn't lay, let it lie there. Then he explains, he kind of follows up on verse 36, that, that this world has never seen a king like him. Never has this world seen. And this is where we come to now to that purpose statement. All of that sets us up for verse 37, this, today's key verse. Uh, he says, here's my kingly mission. Yes, I'm a king, but here's what I'm, my kingdom's about. Here's my kingly mission. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's why I was born, Jesus says, to bear witness to the truth. Not to conquer territory. Not to overthrow the Caesar, not to build an empire, not to gather treasure. I was born, King Jesus says, to tell you the truth. I was born to reveal reality. Now that starts first and foremost with himself. That starts with Jesus. And that, I think, is the key to understanding this statement correctly. Uh, Jesus is not saying, I, I, this is, you, you read this and you go, oh, well, that's easy, right? That, but I, I found myself kind of struggling with this text this week. He's not saying merely that he knows the truth and he's going to tell us what it is, right? Like some perfect professor, you know, like I, I know all the truth and now here I'm going to tell you the truth. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying something bigger than that. He is saying that he himself is the truth. And so what he's claiming is that the truth is not a what to be known. The truth is a who. The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus. That's what he says. He came to bear witness to that. I like how there's a a commentary on John that I like to use sometimes written by a guy named Edward Klink. Uh, Klink summarizes uh, this way. I, I like his wording here. He says, Jesus is the reality 
through which existence and participation in God are confirmed and find their meaning. Jesus fulfills this by embodying the supreme revelation. He is the supreme revelation of God. Jesus is the standard for what is real in this world and true about God, for he is the one who reveals God. I like that last sentence especially. Jesus is the standard for what is real in this world and true about God, for he is the one who reveals God. And that, realizing that, seeing that, helps us understand so many of the other things that get said in, in, in the Gospels, um, particularly here in John. It's actually a theme that builds through John. And so in John chapter 1, verse 18, uh, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's talking there about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who's revealed the reality that is God. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and Jesus says of John that he bore witness to the truth. And if you look at the passage there, it's clear in the context that Jesus is talking about himself. Right? John didn't bear witness to the truth that people need to repent of their sins. Lots of prophets have been saying that. John bore witness to the truth when he pointed to Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John bore witness to Jesus. John bore witness to the truth. John 14, 6. Uh, this one's even more direct, a familiar passage for many. Uh, I'll start with verse 1, actually. I want to read all six verses. So, so just a few hours before his meeting with Pontius Pilate, Jesus is having a private meeting with his disciples. And uh, he knows what's coming, so he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, he's talking about heaven, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, told, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Would I lie to you? Really what Jesus says to, to his disciples. Would I lie to you? Would I tell you I'm going to go to heaven and get a place ready for you if I wasn't going to do it? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself that you may be where I also am. And you know the way. You know the way to where I'm going, he says. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way. Right? Do you see what I mean? He's, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about some way that exists outside of him. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. That is, no one gets to experience the ultimate reality of a personal relationship with their creator except through me. I'm the way. I'm the, I'm the truth. I'm the life, Jesus says. And so what he's saying is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the ultimate reality, truth, with a capital T. And this is one of the reasons Jesus came to us. This is one of the reasons he was born. He was born to bear witness to that, to show us God, to reveal reality. Now, this applies to everything. I'm convinced that what I've just told you, I know it's, a kind of, it's sort of a philosophical idea we're wrestling here with this morning, but because of that, it touches everything. It touches every area of existence. We could talk about academia, or we could talk about economics, we could talk about ethics, we could talk about sexuality, we could talk about... I, I can't think of a subject that this reality does not touch. However, it's just one sermon, so we can't talk about everything. So uh, I, I kind of thought this through, and, and what I'd like to share with you for the rest of my time is uh, just four areas of existence, four parts of our existence that this fact touches, right? So Jesus was born to reveal reality. Let's talk about four things he tells the truth about. 
Right? And, and these, I won't make the claim that these are the four most important ones. I don't think they are. But, uh, but they're big ones, and they're timely ones as we enter into, Christ, into the Christmas season. So uh, all four of these are kind of timely along these lines. So uh, four, four things Jesus tells us the truth about. Uh, the first one is that he tells us the truth about gratitude. And uh, it's Thanksgiving weekend. I wanted to make sure we, we thought some about thankfulness in the context of Scripture. Uh, Jesus shows us that, truth, that gratitude belongs to God. Right? He tells us the truth about gratitude. Um, it's become, um, I don't know if it's a new thing or if it just comes out in new ways, but uh, it's, it's kind of popular these days to talk about the usefulness of thankfulness, right? the utility of thankfulness, of gratitude. I know I saw more than one story in the last week about how you know, being uh, grateful gives you a positive attitude and you know, your, heart pressure, your blood pressure goes down if you're grateful. And, and what you end up with, and that's all true, that's all true, uh, but what you end up with is this idea that thankfulness is kind of a, an aimless, nebulous, undirected thing. Right? It's just kind of, it's a, it's, a, it's a feeling we feel that has no object, you know, and so they'll tell us just be thankful, and we say thankful to whom? Oh, it doesn't matter to whom, there's no to whom about it, just feel thankful. You do not find that in the Bible, right? So that seems very therapeutic and very kind of helpful and positive and yay us for kind of having a good outlook on life in the midst of a pandemic and whatever else, but, but you will not find this kind of disconnected sense of gratitude in the scripture. In the Bible, Gratitude is directed to God. And we see this in Christ's own life. So this is a reality. I could find you a hundred verses that say this in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes and he says, and here it is. He shows it to us. Uh, and I'll give you just one example. Um, John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, uh, you have the, the feeding of the 5,000. So one of the, most, one of the really spectacular miracles that Jesus does, just because it affects so many people. And so you have this crowd of, well, 5,000 men, plus all the women and children that are there. Let's call it 15,000 or 20,000, something like that. And so, uh, and they don't have any food. And his disciples bring him one little boy's lunch, one lunchbox. And Jesus does a miracle and he uses one boy's lunch and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. And, and a lot of times when we read that story or we, we hear a sermon about it, our attention goes on the power, right? The, the miracle. Jesus miraculously feeds all these people. That's amazing. Or sometimes we'll take this text and we'll talk about uh, generosity. Have you ever heard a generosity sermon on this one? Be like the little boy, right? <laughs> A bit like the little boy and give your lunch, right? What if I give all? I remember this is a song a few years ago. What if I give all? What if I give everything to God? What will he do with what I give him? And so sometimes you'll get like kind of a, a, an application about um, generosity from this text. There's one detail, though, that often gets missed in this text, and it is quite simply that before Jesus does anything, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. John 6, 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Why did he do that? Why would he do that? I mean, he, he's about to prove that he's God by doing a jaw-dropping miracle, and yet he still pauses to give thanks to the Father. And I think the reason he does it is that it's the right thing to do. Right? This is the reality. Thanks is, belongs to God. Thanks for food. Thanks for love. Thanks for possessions. Thanks for miracles. All thanks is directed to, uh, to, to, to God. God deserves our thanks. And, and Jesus shows us this. And so it's a reality. He just reveals it in his words and in his life. I've always loved uh, what G.K. Chesterton said, or one of the things Chesterton said about gratitude. Uh, he wrote, The worst moment for an atheist is when he's really thankful and has no one to thank. 
I've always loved that one. And Jesus is the solution to that dilemma because he tells the truth about gratitude. Gratitude's not a nebulous, aimless thing. Gratitude belongs to God. Here's another one. He also tells us the truth about Christmas. Right, here we are, first day of Advent. Uh, it's, a, it's a timely one. The banners and the buttons are right. <laughs> Please don't think I'm criticizing that statement. It's, it's more than just a clever rhyme. Jesus really is the reason for the season. And this one's important for us. It's, it's good because it centers us, and it challenges us a little bit, too. I, I, I'll focus on the challenge piece. The centers piece is it just reminds us, yeah, it's about Jesus, right? It's not about all this stuff. But it's also kind of a challenge. We like to imagine sometimes that we're the defenders of Christmas, right? We're going to protect it from you know, the, the, the encroaching secularism and, the, and this kind of thing. But we can't really do that if we don't believe it ourselves. Right? We cannot effectively defend Christmas, if I can use that word, if we don't believe in our own hearts that this thing is so important. Uh, do, you know, we, we say Jesus is the reason for the season, but, but do we functionally believe it? Do, do you see it in the way we live? Uh, would it still be a Merry Christmas if there were no gifts at all? Right, we always got to wrestle with that. Would it still be? Would we still celebrate if there were no trees, uh, no Christmas trees, no, uh, no inflatable, cheerful lawn ornaments? No lights, no parade, no music, no concerts. Would we still feel joy in our hearts if there was no family to gather with? Right? If for some reason we had to spend the day by ourselves, maybe even the whole season all by ourselves, would we, would we still feel uh, joy? Well, if we understand this truth that Jesus was born to reveal, uh, and we'll be talking about some of these, we got you know, into it today, who he is, why he came, why it matters, uh, the answer will be yes. Yeah, which isn't to say we choose to do without those things. Those are, those are good gifts. There's a reason we celebrate. There's a reason God gives us these, these things to celebrate with. Uh, and so we, I'm not saying we throw those things out. We wouldn't choose to do without them. But if we had to, we would still celebrate. Because the most important thing, the, the, the truth about Christmas, that we are celebrating the Savior's birth, uh, would still be there. It would still be true. Third, uh, Jesus also tells us the truth about kingdoms. And this one is uh, really more from John 18. It really stood out to me, and I think it's a timely one for the day we live in. Uh, because there's a real tension. There's a real tension in this text. Uh, and the tension is around two different types of kingdoms, right? Two conceptions of what it means to be a king and, and to have a kingdom. And they really are very different from each other, these two different kinds of kingdoms. On the one hand, you have Pontius Pilate. I think about our, 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 our protagonist here, our antagonist, I suppose, uh, Pontius Pilate. He's the governor of Rome. Uh, about a fourth of the world's population was under the thumb of Rome in the first century AD. Uh, a quarter of the world answered to Rome. And so Pilate, and Pilate's one of their provincial governors here in this part of the world. And so for Pilate, kingdoms are about power. They're about position, they're about politics, they're about armies and taxes and, and authority and what you can get from the people you've conquered. That's one conception of kingdom. On the other hand, you have Jesus. Yes, it is as you say, I am a king. Yes, I have a kingdom, right? So you have Jesus. And his idea of a kingdom is so different from that of Pontius Pilate. Jesus has an army. Right? He refers to it in verse 36. And it's, his army is bigger and more powerful than anything Pilate can imagine. And yet he doesn't call on them, he doesn't mobilize them, he doesn't bring them in to, to save him from trouble. Uh, he has authority, right? Jesus has authority. In fact, Jesus has all the authority. Uh, 
uh, just read Colossians 1 if you have any question about that. Jesus has all the authority, and yet he allows himself to be arrested, bound, beaten, put on trial before these petty humans. The kingdom of heaven, the real kingdom that Jesus has come to reveal, and you see actually in all four gospels to varying degrees, it's a theme that runs all through his ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, his kingdom has an entirely different set of values than the world's kingdoms. Uh, the world says victory is to the strong. Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, the world says grab all you can. Jesus says blessed are the meek. Uh, the world says hurt those who hurt you. Uh, Jesus says forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. And they go on and on. We could, we could spend a half an hour just listing the differences between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Christ. And that's what he's, he came to show. You read through those Gospels, you read through the Epistles, you see again and again how different his values, his kingdoms, his kingdom is from that of the world. And that's the real one. That's the one that's going to last forever. That's the one we are, are pledging ourselves to when we come to Christ. And here's another truth he tells us about these two kingdoms. Uh, it's that we cannot serve them both. Right? We can't serve them both. Matthew 6, 24, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, which could be called the Sermon of the Kingdom. Uh, sermon, uh, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And that word mammon is so much bigger than just money. It's, it's kind of value system, the world system. And Jesus comes and he says, you can't serve them both. You've got to pick one. And the, the world's kingdoms, they look powerful, they look mighty, but they're passing away. His is the one that will stand forever. So that's another truth he tells us, and, and kind of a big one that affects us in the way we think about our world. And then the, the fourth one I wanted to point out is just simply that he tells the truth about us. He tells the truth about Jesus came to reveal the truth about ourselves. And this works both ways. It, it's kind of the positive and the, you know, the good news and the bad news. Uh, on the one hand, it elevates us. Right? It, it elevates us. Jesus came to reveal a, a very elevated understanding of human beings. We are not mere animals. We are not mere beasts. We are created. We are a special creation created in the image of God. He, and it means he values us. He values us so much that he became one of us. Right? In this miracle we call the incarnation, God became a human being. And so if you want to know how much God treasures human beings, how much he values us, start with the fact that he chose to become one. He chose to become one of us. Uh, which means, and maybe a few of you need to hear this today, it means you personally are valuable to God. Right? The human race is valuable to God. Stop kind of treating it like it's a pariah on the planet, like some will talk about these days, as if we're a, a virus that's messing the planet up. Throw that out. But it also means you personally are valuable to God. So stop hating yourself, stop hurting yourself, stop running yourself down. God loves you so much. You're so valuable to him. That's one of the realities Christ came to show. And yet we're also sinners. And that one has to be grappled with too. We are, we are not basically good people who do bad things from time to time. Right? It's kind of, you know, humans are basically good. We just kind of mess up now and again. That is, that's what the world says. Right? The world says, you know, if we just had more education, if we had just had more money, if we just had better governments, uh, then everything would be great. Right? We just need to tinker a little bit more, a little bit of this, a little bit more of that, we could fix it all. But that's not true. That's not true. Uh, 
scriptures teach, Jesus came to teach, that we are sinners both by nature and by deed, and no amount of education, no amount of money, no amount of scientific findings, nothing else, anything else is going to fix that. Our only hope is for someone outside of ourselves to come down and save us. That's one of the big, big things Jesus came to show. That's one of the big truths he tells us. And we're going to talk about that one more, actually, in the, in the coming weeks as we look at some other passages in the next three or four weeks. But I just wanted to lay that foundation now. Uh, he came to tell us the truth about the human race. It's, it's really one of the most real things that we need to know about ourselves, and it frames so much else. We are sinners in need of a Savior. At the end of verse 37, uh, Jesus says uh, something else about truth in this passage. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what that part does, that verse 37, if you've read the text, you've read the chapter, or you can, it kind of moves on now from this subject. But in verse 37, that last sentence is is the decision. It's the decision part of this text. Uh, Because Jesus says he was born to reveal the truth. This is the purpose. But not everyone accepts the truth. Not everyone accepts it. It's only those who listen to me, he says. The ones who are of the truth are the ones who listen to my voice, who hear what I say and do what I tell them. (laughs) iPad's not working with me here. (laughs) One more page. There we go. (laughs) And so Pilate is going to answer, right? So so Jesus puts a choice. So it's decision time. Verse 37, Jesus puts a choice before Pontius Pilate. He says, I've come to reveal the truth. Now what are you going to do with it? I think that's what's happening there at the end of verse 37. And look what Pilate says. Pilate says, no thanks. No thanks. Pilate said, what is truth? And what a very famous kind of a statement from this text. What is truth? And I think you can take that in two levels. On the one hand, it comes off as very cynical. Right? I mean, Pilate would fit right in in some places today. You know, bah, truth. What's truth? Truth is for closed-minded people who don't know how big the world really is. That's, that's what truth is. There's no such thing as truth. And, and, I, and, and a lot of times people will ascribe that to Pontius Pilate, and I do think that's part of it. He comes off, if you read about him in the Gospels and even from history, uh, he's a very cynical individual. And so I do think that's part of it. But there's something deeper going on here as well, and the deeper thing is that he's rejecting Jesus. This is Pilate's rejection of Jesus. Uh, In verse 37, Jesus says, my people are truth people. Verse 38, Pilate says, count me out. Count me out. I don't want anything to do with your truth, Jesus. I don't want anything to hear about it. And so this is more than just Pilate the cynic. This is Pilate the sinner. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. As we go along uh, in the next few weeks here in this little series, we're going to see that the reasons for the season challenge us. They, they do. They, they press on us a little bit. They challenge us, just like they challenged Pontius Pilate. Jesus challenges him in this text. Again, you see the power and authority of Jesus. He's the one standing there with his hands bound on his way to a cross, and yet there he is, challenging and inviting Pilate to himself. And so these reasons we're going to talk about, they challenge us. They challenge us to remember that Christmas is more than what uh, is so often presented to us. It's more than just warm holiday feelings. Uh, It is a life-changing reality, starting with what we've talked about today, starting with the fact that Jesus is truth. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you uh, for uh, this life-changing reality that our our lives, our our existence, our relationships, everything we we engage with and are part of 
Uh, you, you, it's all defined by and in and through you. You are the way and the truth and the life. And we, we testify to that. We confess that we believe that that is true. And we pray that you would help us to walk in that. Lord, if there are any here today who are um, wrestling with that, who aren't ready to, to, or haven't been ready to believe that yet, I pray you'd be working in, in their, those folks' hearts and, and just bringing home this message. My words are frail. I'm not going to impress anybody. But would you, by your spirit, um, bring home uh, this reality that uh, this is what lasts forever. You are the truth who defines everything. And so I would just pray that you'd be bringing that message home to every single one of us, wherever we're at with you. In Jesus' name, we dare to ask this. <laughs> Amen.